Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. So we're just going to go straight into Genesis 3. We are talking about the nature of suffering, which is always a fun topic to, for any pastor to teach on, and it's always fun for, of course, you to listen uh, to. So we are diving into the whole idea of suffering. This is the second, and I plan on one more sermon, um, all of it being drawn out of as a result of what Acts 9 was talking about. When we were in the book of Acts two weeks ago, we saw that Paul, who was still called Saul at that time, uh, that he had been told by the Lord that there was a certain amount of suffering that he must uh, endure for the name of Christ. And immediately that suffering began because he now confessed Jesus as Lord rather than rejecting Jesus as Lord. And so people literally were trying to kill him. And he escapes that. And then when he's in Jerusalem, he again is confronted by the fact that he's preaching about Jesus Christ and calling people to repent. And they again seek to lay hold of him, and he is able to escape as well. And we talked about nine different lessons from that passage about the nature of suffering in the life of a converted man or woman, one who has turned from their sin and now been converted to faith in Christ. One of the key lessons is the suffering for Christ is never just reserved for the mature. It's reserved for all who love Jesus Christ, young or old in their faith. It didn't matter. For Paul, it was literally days, and he already had his life threatened. None of you are exempt from that. If you follow Christ, you will suffer, especially because you cannot deny him if you truly follow him. In fact, Saul wrote this very, these very words to a son in the faith. His name is Timothy in 2 Timothy, where he makes this abundantly clear. He says, indeed, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You don't have to know Greek to know what that says, do you? It says what it says. You desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. We also learn that though we can seek to avoid suffering, and there's nothing wrong with that, we can never do it by compromising our faith. Grayson made that point in his sermon Sunday on how well we all live our lives, or how we all live our lives trying to mitigate the effects of sin. Every one of us lives a life acknowledging that sin and death is part of it, and that's why we make plans the way we do and we prepare for things. As Christians, you're going to find times where you will realize you only have two options, so one is to deny Christ, and the other is to proclaim him. There's only those two options. 
And at that time, you need, even though your legs may melt from underneath you and maybe your voice begins to quaver, you need to look at the people and you need to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, there's other lessons I talked about, nine specific, but I made it plain up front in that sermon that there were certain types of suffering I was not talking about. I was not talking about suffering when you do wrong. I was not suffering about talking about suffering when the Lord disciplines you. Uh, I was not talking about suffering that was uh, due to hardships or sickness. Rather, this was the kind of suffering related specifically to following Jesus. Keep that in mind. Last week, last sermon was specific to following Christ. What I want to do over the next two uh, sermons is then work through these other types of sufferings and why we are to look at suffering in different ways and try to discern what kind of suffering is going on. And the better you do that, the better off you will function in your life. Before we do that, I want you to understand, first of all, the root of suffering. And we have to go to Genesis 3 for that. And you can skim your eyes down as I give you the essence of what chapter 3 is talking about. When Adam and Eve, the first humans, created, God created Adam, and out of Adam he created Eve, and from that the human race was to come forth, and they were commanded to not eat of a specific tree, and the fruit of that tree, and they chose to eat it. He said, on the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And though they did not die physically, they in fact died. They died spiritually. And, and with that, then the grave was their goal. They were all, all of humanity then began to march. Genesis chapter 5, it says over and over again, so-and-so was born. He lived such so long, and then he died. Everything ends with he died. But when they ate, everything became warped. Everything was twisted under the presence and power of sin, and we see it every day. Every one of you, in some way, see it. You see it in the drugs and and the abuse and the violence. You see it in the lies. You see it in the lust. You can name a thousand different ways, if you spent the time, ways that the sin that is upon this world manifests itself in day-to-day lives. And in the third chapter, we see why. The woman Eve, right away in the first few verses, the woman Eve is deceived by the serpent, who is Satan. Uh, We know that from the scripture. He, He calls her to question God. He says, did God indeed say? Did he really say? So right away, the the working is to twist God's words. And then second built into that is, is God really for your good? Is he trying to withhold something desirable and good? You should eat of that tree because he doesn't want you to know these things. He's hiding something from you. And Eve was deceived, the Bible says. It says it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're trying to find it right there. But who was not deceived was Adam. Adam knew full well what had happened. He saw his wife eat, and she gave the fruit to him, and he ate also. He ate with a full knowledge of what was not to be done. God had told him, don't. Do not do this. He had communicated that to his wife. She had not heard that from God himself. It was his responsibility. He is the head of humanity. And as the head of humanity, and as the vice regent 
over this creation. When he sinned, all of creation then came under the dominion of sin. So all of this universe is literally carrying the effects and the dominion of sin in it. Well, in verses 8 through 19 then, all of that is laying out the consequences given by God. This is important to see that because of that, things happen. He condemns and curses the serpent, and he says that he will be uh, built, he will be humbled and humiliated, but more importantly, he will be with enmity. With who? Well, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between, between your seed and her seed, talking about offspring there. And then he goes to a singular, and he says, and one seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is what called the, the proto-evangelium. It's the, the, the essential beginning of the gospel, the good news. This is the first glimmer after everything is broken that God is not finished, but that God has a plan. And he says that out of, this, out of humanity will come the seed of the woman, this offspring of the woman, and he, a specific one, is going to bruise you on the head, meaning crush you. That's a good word. But then he turns his mind to the woman in verse 16. He says, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Right there, he sums up two of the main things that women have to endure. The, 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 the curse related to conception and childbirth. Now, this is not just having the baby. I remember Kim, <laughs> she, when, when we were having our first one, she said, as I was telling her, breathe, baby, breathe, you know, because I'm all about helping, um, uh, that I, I'm looking at her, and she looks at me, she's like, it's not my fault, it's Eve's. And I'm like, breathe, <laughs> just Breathe. I'll just stay up here by the head and not move. But it's not just that. It's loss of children in childbirth. It's um, all of the, the monthly cycle, all of the pain. It's, it's endometriosis. It's infertility. All of those things just are part of that curse. But also, he says, and you will want to your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And that desire speaks of this desire to assert your authority over him and to fight and resist. And instead, the man will press, press down. He will be a, a strong authority that you will not like. And that describes marriage. Everybody walks in, they keep thinking. I, I walk a person through their um, premarital, and they all assure me that they got this, and they understand they're a sinner, and that this will be all be great, and we'll, we'll really do good. And then a year later, I meet with most of them, and they confess to me that they're really bad at this. And it's like, of course, two sinners said I do, and, and the tensions, and, and what's going on is just being played out right here. And then he says to the man, I will curse the ground that you live on, 
And everything you do, try to build out all the fruit, all the labors that you will do as the man going out into the world to, to conquer it and bring it under submission. Now creation will fight back. It will push back. It will resist you in every possible way. And any one of you who has lived any length of time knows exactly what that's like. Everything becomes hard. Everything has issues because of sin. That's all that's happening. But he gave these consequences. That's important to note. And so Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, he says it theologically this way. He says, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death, that's important, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Because we are in Adam, he is the head of our race, humanity sinned, and because sin is here, death comes. And everything that leads up to death is included in that. So all of the fact that you have cancer and you have sickness and you have violence, all of these things are the result of the presence of sin. All through this one man, Adam, and therefore we all suffer. So you can look at humanity and you can understand that suffering is just part of the human race. It's not unique to a Christian. What's unique to a Christian is suffering for the name of Christ. But all the people are going to suffer. In fact, Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3, 19 and 20, he says, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. You're a man or a and an animal, the end is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. Why? For all is vanity, it's futility. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. The writer there, Solomon, says life in and of itself is futile. All it is is you chasing the wind and you keep thinking it will get better and you keep grabbing and grabbing and then it all crumbles because all will die. And so the only hope is to look outside of this fallen world for your hope and that is found in Jesus Christ. Suffering is then something all people understand because it's common. Sickness, sin, death, they dominate our lives until eventually we find ourselves facing that specter of death itself in our own life. Sometimes far sooner, sometimes a lot longer than we expected, but all of us will come to that point. But sin also means, because sin dominates this age, that through no fault of our own, we will suffer We can be sinned against. A lot of times we talk here about the fact that we ourselves are sinners, but we also need to remember that as sinners, we live among sinners, and sinners will sin against us. Having evil done to you, in other words, is not unique to being a Christian either. You're a sinner among sinners, and you will suffer. And so as a result, you see things like marriages, children, vacations, employment, or simply eating all carry with it the domination of sin. And so adultery and abuse occur in marriages. Disobedience, rebellion, and abuse occur in families. Vacations go awry in a multitude of ways, sometimes mildly annoying and sometimes with deadly actions. 
You watch favoritism or a loss of a pension at your job. You endure as an employer pilfering and laziness. You have unjust demands and unfaithful workers or unfaithful masters. Or maybe it's as simple as you're just trying to have a fun time and celebrate the birthday of your child and someone chokes. It's just sin. It's just sin in the world dominating everything and just twisting it. And we deal with it constantly. All of it flows from that same stream of sin in the world. It's common. But the Bible also talks about other ways that suffering occurs, and that's what I want to work you through. That's a basic sense of suffering is just part of the human existence. But there are other ways that we can suffer that we need to understand what's going on and how to respond. We've seen the lessons in suffering for the name of Christ. Now we're going to learn about suffering when we do wrong as opposed to suffering due to discipline from the Lord. That's different. And then suffering that comes through trials or hardships. Next uh, time we'll deal with suffering under the discipline of the Lord and trials. Today I want to talk about suffering for wrongdoing. And the way I'm going to do that while you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 is I've got a couple of quick stories to tell you. When I was first here as pastor, um, there were many challenges here as a church and many foolish things had occurred. Some of you go long enough back that you'll perhaps recall this situation. But I had a, a, a mother and she brought her daughter or her son and her his girlfriend, who was underage, uh, into the office, and she knocked on my door and, and then walked in, and she said, Pastor, there's sin in our midst. Okay. Um, in my mind, I'm like, what's new? I've been dealing with it all week long. So, okay, sit down. Let's find out what's going on. And, of course, the age-old story, the girl had thought she had the flu, and it wasn't passing, it wasn't getting better, so she went down to the doctor, and of course they did a test, and she's pregnant. And here's the 22-year-old son with his 17-year-old girlfriend, and she wants me to rebuke them. And so we begin the process. Then they want to get married, and I would not marry them. Um, I would not marry them with a service or a celebration. I said, we will not have any celebration. We will have no uh, reception following. You can come to my office. I will marry you. Um, There are more to this, but I'm not going to take the time. Uh, I will marry you, bring a couple of witnesses, and we will do this. But this is not a time of celebration. This is a time of shame. You chose to consummate before you made covenant, and I will not celebrate that. Our church had a reputation of young ladies who had uh, become pregnant, had a wedlock, and the the young men of the church were quite happy to oblige in that thing. And when that happened, our church had been steadily declining from a high of 166, and on that 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 happened on a Thursday, I think, and that Sunday, 18 more people left the church, all in protest over my ungodly, unforgiving, unchristlike decision to not allow them to have a reception or to have a public wedding uh, to celebrate their immorality. And that was the lowest we ever got as a church. We went down to 48 people that Sunday, and I was not sure. I I told my wife, I'm like, I don't know if we'll recover. And by God's grace, we had. 
Now, I'll give you another story. I was a chaplain, head chaplain for the super maximum security in L.A. County jails. Seminary students who needed to practice preaching would come to me and ask me, can I come with you and so I can preach to the inmates? I think they have to have practice, and there are a certain required number of sermons every semester a seminary student had to do. Now, keep that in mind. I'm on the freeway driving with this seminary student who was a friend of mine. Now, understand that at the church, we had a large bookstore. It's called the Book Shack, and, and in it, we would sell everything that was worthwhile. It's a great bookstore, but we also bought all of our seminary textbooks from there. And there was a guy um, who was working there as a seminary student. He was stealing books. And these are not cheap books. These are very expensive books, the kind that pastors salivate over. And he was then magically selling them out of the trunk of his car. And the seminary students were happy to oblige him and give him, of course, cash only um, for a nice discount. And he just claimed that these were books that he had got and they were uh, no longer necessary in his library and you can get a great deal on this. And seminary students were lining up for it and never once apparently thought, this seems shady. This just just weird. Well, Unbeknownst to him, we had been tracking him, and we just needed to verify and clarify a few things. And what started out to be a few hundred dollars rapidly turned into thousands. In fact, um, I stopped being involved once it hit $10,000 worth of books. We're not talking about just a few. Well, in the California Penal Code, it, when a felony, and that would be a felony, occurs, it states that the officer shall effect an arrest, meaning not he may, which means he has the choice to arrest or not. When he, the penal code says shall, it's legal talk of you must. Well, I had a friend, his name is Shelley. He was LAPD. His wife's name was Dale, so it was always a little confusing. When you're talking to Shelley, you're looking at the lady and Dale, you're looking at the guy, but not with them. Well, Shelley was a great guy, but he was tasked with the job of okay, here's the evidence, what do you say? He's like, well, I got to go arrest him. And so he's like, where's he at? Well, he's in Hebrew class, learning biblical Hebrew. And so Shelly comes up there with full uniform, knocks on the door. The professor is Shelly's friend. Hey, Shelly, what you here for? Hey, can I talk to, and gave the guy's name. Well, you know what would happen. Everybody's watching. A policeman's asking this guy to come out. Do you think anyone's paying attention to the professor now? No. They're all looking through the window. Well, he takes the guy out and looks at him right in the eye and did what cops do. He says, you're under arrest for grand theft. Turn around, hooks him up, walks him out. Everybody lost it. Now we're back in the car with my seminary friend. Conversation turns to that event. He was furious. He was offended. How dare that? That was not Christ-like. Where's the grace? Where's the kindness? Where's the mercy? They didn't need to do that. They, they did him dirty. How dare they come and arrest him right in front of his peers? This is shameful. I can't believe that John MacArthur would allow that. Blah, 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 blah. I lost it. I said, you hypocrite. I said, what is your problem? I said, it's, somehow you're going to make it Shelley's fault that he had to arrest the thief? Are you serious? And it went downhill from there. It was a very pleasant drive to the jails. But one of my points was, I said, he is literally no different than the men 
that you're going to go preach to. And he lost it himself. He says, they deserve to be in there. I said, you're right, they do. And so does your friend. He is a criminal. He's a thief. There's nothing praiseworthy here. And look at you. You look at the men who are wearing county orange, and you say, oh, wicked. Shame on you. You're not preaching for their souls. You're just practicing on them. How dare you treat these men, men who carry the image of God in such a shoddy way that you'll practice your sermons on them, but you have no concern for their soul. But then you have a seminary student who knows better, commits great crime, and oh, oh, pity him, pity him. You can kind of sense I'm not that pleasant man on my own. There's so many other stories I could tell you. But just with those, I want you to understand that the Bible actually has a theology of suffering for wrongdoing as a Christian, and it guides us, or it ought to, and that's what we're going to do today. And I'm in trouble. Oh, nope, I'm still good. All right. Um, so, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're, well, all we're going to do is just look at several passages, and my attempt here is to show you that these are not exceptions. The Bible factors in very clearly that as a Christian, people will do foolish and sinful things, and I'll draw them out in various ways. In 1 Peter 3.17, he talks about, um, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, but with gentleness and fear. Having a good conscience, notice this, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, that's false speech against you, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what? Doing good rather than for wrongdoing. In the midst of all this instruction that Peter is talking to and this, these people about suffering for the name of Christ, which is what he is dealing with, and we'll see it again in chapter 4. We just did it in our Lord's Supper. Peter gives this side warning about a different kind of suffering, a suffering for wrongdoing. Why? Well, because we have a habit, beloved, for turning uh, the consequence of sin in our life and foolishness in their life as something that we can exploit for our own. We can monetize it. We can do good things out of it. In fact, it's actually at the very core of what is called intersectionality, that whole philosophy today, where you try to figure out as many points of intersection where you can make yourself to be a victim. So you want to be a drunkard. Well, I'm an alcoholic, and that's my victimhood. You want to be a drug addict. Well, then you're a drug addict. You want to be an adulterer, you can be an adulterer. You can do all of this and any of this. You can cross-dress, you can have gender, pronouns, everything. They're all attempting to create some sense of, I want to do this. This is what my heart yearns for, and I will claim victimhood in the process. And the society is happy too often to do so. But when it's a Christian doing that, how should we respond Two quick points I want you to consider. When you do wrong and you suffer for it, the church is not going to help you. Just understand that. The church is not called to hurt with you as you endure suffering for your sin. 
The church is not called to feel badly for you or to come alongside to help with your burdens placed upon you or anything else in the way of being an aid. I want that up front so that you can then think through that as we work through the message. At the same time, though, there should, while we say, would say that there's no place for giving you sympathy because you did wrong and now you suffer for it, there's also no room for invectives. We don't sit there and just treat you like a dog and kick you off to the side and serves you right, and I'd never do that. But it's not the church's job to come alongside to ameliorate or make better or fix the consequences of your folly. He says, it's better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. Meaning, it's not good. It's not God's will that you suffer because you did wrong. That's just consequences built into it. And it's worth noting that suffering is a major part of Peter's letter, but he makes a strong distinction between suffering that comes as a result of your faith in Christ and suffering due to your simple choices. It indicates that the people then are just like now. Notice in verse uh, 16, it's all about being slandered and reviled for good things. And that's still true to this day. You stand firm on the things of God and the, what the Word says, and this world will revile you. They will slander you, and that's common. And he's like, if it is, you are blessed. You shouldn't avoid that. You shouldn't try to soften your message. It's God's will, in fact, if you suffer when you do right. When you do the right thing and you say, why am I suffering? I must be doing something wrong. No, it's God's will. This is all good and proper. But when you suffer for doing wrong, you should suffer consequences. So just go over one chapter to chapter 4, and we'll see in verses 14 to 16. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He's like, look, what's interesting is he doesn't give you sympathy there either. He's like, well, you're blessed. But he, he, he slandered me. He, he hated me. He insulted me as a Christian. Uh-huh. And he says, and you're blessed. So go, go keep doing what you're doing. But then he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be put to shame, but to glorify God in this name. Here, What's he saying? He's saying this. If you are suffering because of a, you're a Christian and people are insulting and slandering you, don't treat that brother or sister as if they've done something wrong. You come alongside them, you encourage them, you help them. There's no shame in suffering for the name of Jesus, and that church should gather around. But by with that in mind, then if you suffer for being a sinner, that you've done things wrong, you're a murderer all the way down to a troublesome meddler, and we'll get into that in a moment, he said you should be put to shame. That's, that's the implication behind it. Don't put to shame the one who suffers for the name of Christ, but you should be putting to shame the one who suffers because they have been a difficult little pain. That's the theological phrase there.
Notice he starts in verse 15 with murder, and he ends with troublesome meddler. It captures in this list, basically all he's doing is capturing a range. He's like, listen, as far as all of a sudden to murder all the way down to being a busybody, don't be named. Don't have that be what they can accuse you of and it be true. And you say, well, could any of that happen? I've told the story many times as a jail chaplain of hearing a guy singing during the singing portion of my service. I'd go and preach five different times on a Wednesday at the jail, and I would lead them in singing, which is hilarious if you've heard me. Um, but they couldn't sing any better. But that one day I had this rich baritone belting out the hymn like nobody's business, and everybody, all these inmates are all hardcore. They're all like looking back, on where's that coming from? The guy came up to me afterward and introduced himself. He was a seminary student, I mean, a seminary professor of Greek, New Testament Greek. He was in for murder. Uh, Just lived in a bad neighborhood, got so fed up with all of the noise and the crime taking place in front of his house, all the music, all hours of night, didn't matter. He just snapped took his gun, confronted a gang member, and next thing you know, he shot and killed him, and now he was spending life. So don't, don't think it wouldn't happen. It does. But that troublesome meddler is where most of us find ourselves. It captures that whole range of foolishness, social media, interactions at public events, trying to be provocative, and such is simply shameful action. It's not the job of the Christian to try to provoke. It's not to be provocative online or in person. You're not just being helpful when you smile and say, oh, I'm just being a devil's advocate once you stir everybody up. That's just being a divisive, factious individual. He says, it should not be named among you. And if you suffer because of those things, no sympathy should come from the church. We should admonish you. We should bring shame upon you. And we should tell you, you need to take your punishment with all humility. Don't come to us and say, pray for me, I'm really suffering right well. Well, that's because you opened your big mouth and said stupid things. How about shutting up? Well, that's very unloving, Pastor. You don't be known for these things. And when you suffer for that, it's not something that you should hold up as a badge of pride. And yet, weirdly, Christians think this way. Instead, we need to remind people like this that they're merely experiencing consequences of sin, and the proper response for them is to humbly take on an attitude of repentance. Own it. Accept it. Well, they're still holding me. They're still treating me badly. They're still looking at me, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, look, you chose the sin. Now humbly embrace the consequences of the sin and grow out of it. But don't think that we're going to gather around you and hold you and place our hands on you, pray a hedge of protection or whatever it is uh, that you might get out from underneath the consequences. You put yourself in there. Now dig yourself out through the help of Christ. In fact, you'll find that the leadership here at Missio Dei is very aggressive with members who seek to be known more for troublemaking than being humble and quiet and godly in their living. That's not a threat. That's just reality. But what's very interesting for us is this becomes a point where people hold, take hold of to argue against. 
They're confronted by others and they reject the counsel. They don't like it. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong. What's wrong with it? It's like, how are you being quiet? How are you being helpful? You're sticking your nose where nobody asks, and then you're wondering why they're upset. And now everyone's in my office and they're talking to me, and we keep finding the same name comes up over and over again. It's Freddie. And Freddie seems to be helpful in making comments. So we're going to go talk to you, Freddie. And the pushback and the, and the offense begins to be taken. It's so common for the person who acts inappropriately as a Christian to think somehow they're the ones standing for truth, that they're the ones who see things clearly, that they suddenly become now the experts on Bible and doctrine. One of the things that's strange over the years we've noticed is that the one who loves to be provocative on subjects is the one who also takes great offense at being pushed back against. You want to walk around with a t-shirt that says whatever, you know, libtards need to grow up or whatever. And you think you're really clever with that shirt. Oh, but then somebody confronts you about that and the whole value of that. And you, oh, you're all offended now. In other words, you're looking to offend, but then you take offense if somebody gives you a challenge on it. It's this weird thing. You'd think that if you want to be that provocative that you would be a thick-skinned person that can take it, but most people don't. Just something we've noticed. I want you to follow along. We're going to just go through several passages. I just want to draw out. Go to 1 Timothy 5. And I just want you to see that the Bible is not silent about the Christian who sins or does foolish things. In chapter 5, this is a strange one, and so you have to bear with me. In verse 11, it's talking about widows in this section. And in verse 11, Paul gives this command as an apostle. What he commands is the command of Christ. So it's not, you can't make this distinction in your mind, okay? He says in verse 11, here's the command, refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring what? Condemnation. Why? Because they have set aside their previous pledge, and at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies taking about, talking about things not proper to mention. Now, we could go on, but time, that's sufficient to deal with. He uses exceedingly strong words there. He uses the word condemnation in verse 12. Why? Well, what's happening is they're not keeping their pledge. In that day, there's actually more than the office of pastor slash elder. There's the deacons, but there's also, uh, in the early church especially, there is this list of the widows, And you had to have certain qualifications. You couldn't just have the fact that your husband died mean mean that you got to go on this list. You were placed on the list, and chapter 5 talks about what you have to be, and only if you qualify for those do you get put on the list. 
And there's two things that would happen. One, the church would care for your needs. They would protect you. They would stand in your way because a widow uh, generally in those cultures had no protections. So the church would gather around her. On the other side, she would pledge, she would make a covenant with the church to be an official servant of the church. So she would come and help take care of things and plan things and prepare things. And, and that was her job as an older widow on the list. And what he says is, look, if you have a younger widow and you put her on this list, you can't. I, I, I forbid you from doing that. And why? Because what will happen is that she's sitting there and then eventually a man who maybe is a widower comes in or whatever, never been married, meets her, is attracted, and ultimately they choose to marry. He says she comes under condemnation. It's, now, now you, you tell me what you would be thinking if I announced to you that some widow in our church, a young widow, um, was, found a man and I met the guy, and they're going to get married, and the celebration of the service will be on this date. How many of you would say, that's wrong? Most of you would say, praise God, man, all right. We're thankful for this. This is good. And then Paul walks in, and he says, what? She did what? Well, she's getting married. That's good. No, it's not. Why? Because she's breaking her pledge. You're telling me that finding a husband's a good thing. You're telling me now that somehow this is sin because now she wants to marry? Yes, I am. She made a pledge. That's what Paul would say. The apostle, that's what the Lord would say. There's a condemnation that comes with that. He also says, not only that, but if, if she's younger, she's going to have greater energy. She'll be able to take care of her tasks for the serving of the church. And then she's going to have too much time in her hand. And the only thing that leads to is gossip and being a busybody. And we don't need that. So right now, let her instead seek to be married and be busy. This is just so counter to how our church world in America functions. Imagine what it would look like on Twitter or X, whatever it's called, if somebody here was in that situation and everyone's like, so we're going to have all this fun stuff and we're gonna, we want to put her on the list and take care of her needs. She's, she's 40 or she's 58. Let's say 58 because the cutoff, if you didn't know, was 60. You're under 60, you can't be on the list. I told my wife when she turned 60, I said, well, you know, no longer do you have to obey the command to go and remarry. She's like, shut up, Matt. (laughs) I'm like, I'm just saying, up to now, if I died, you'd have to go and seek to be married uh, again if you you were able. She's like, yes, and one was enough. And I'm like, (laughs) that may be true, but still. But you couldn't. Now, can you imagine me making an announcement? Hey, we've heard about uh, Catherine and her situation. And yes, we are aware. And we know there's a big push to have her put on the list. We are not going to. She is uh, too young to be put on that list. She needs to instead go and seek to be married. Tweet that. And just, just watch the fun. Christian Today, feature article. This is a gospel issue. This is not winsome. And on and on and on and on. You're actually obeying the scripture. And somehow you're being bad. 
And if you were to say she is condemned, where do you get off and saying that? Well, because the Bible says so. Do you see? There's consequences. Here's a simple thing that doesn't seem bad, but it's a breaking of your word, which you cannot do. And he says, as a result, there's a condemnation that comes with it. There's a consequence. Go down to verse 19. He says, do not, this is a command, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of the two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, meaning the elder, reprove in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful. In this, he he tells us that the office of an elder, a pastor, is one where those not in the position can find it very easy to find fault. This is just part and parcel of being a pastor. John MacArthur has a a wonderful little clip that you can see on the internet about, he's like, do you want to handcuff or, uh, yeah, basically handcuff your pastor? Make him not offend anyone. Tell him he can't offend anyone. He's like, he can't do it. At that point, he, you've totally handcuffed him in his role as a pastor. And then to the, the crowd, and it was numbered in the thousands, he says, I try to offend everyone. And everyone's ha, 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 ha. And it's true. He does. Not because he's like, how can I be offensive? But he knows that the word of God confronts, and it cuts, and it offends. And he has to have that knowledge of freedom from the pulpit that when he preaches these things, that it's going to offend. And, and this is the reality that many people take offense at a pastor, an elder, and they decide they have to talk about to others and bring it up. And he says, you're not allowed to receive an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. It's that simple. And so God protects the office by making it clear that if you don't have two or three witnesses to this issue, you need to shut up and leave it alone. Now, accusations against elders come in all the shapes and sizes and flavors. It's just part of the, part of the game, so to speak. I've discipled enough young men over the years to tell them to get over themselves and just deal with it, that people are going to do this. But when an accusation gets made, generally speaking, there becomes pushback. Now, maybe it's a, a, a genuine accusation. You know, they've, they've seen you lie. They've seen you do something, and they come, and, and, the, and they deal with that. The pastor, hopefully, the elder, pastor, elder, or the same thing, uh, should, in humility, embrace that and repent. That's what verse uh, 20 deals with. But sometimes, in fact, many times, what happens happened is nothing. You just didn't like what was said. It hurt you. It offended you. It shocked you, whatever it might be. And so you then react. And when you get pushed back, what's interesting, again, is somehow the person who's making the accusation doesn't like having pushback. And then they take offense, and they get angry. And then it turns into a big old mess. And we've had that many a time in our church. The consequences of that is that that person oftentimes ends up losing a lot of respect from the people that he should want respect from. He loses his reputation. He might even lose a position or so simply because he's chosen to ignore the scripture that says you will not receive an accusation. In other words, this is what you are called to do. Did you know that when somebody starts to talk about your elders and they're complaining about it, that you are to stop them right away and just tell them, stop? Stop. 
Why am I hearing this and why are you saying it? Unless there's two or three witnesses, you're not there to begin to hear that. It's common in churches and it's so destructive. You have to reject it and that comes with that consequence then. What's interesting is he also says if, if there is an accusation, you're to bring it. If you have the two or three witnesses, bring the accusation. And if the elder continues to sin, he's to be rebuked. Did you know we dealt with that once? We had an elder who for years had been doing sin, and I, had been, I knew he was doing it. This applies to fellow elders. I knew he was doing the things he was doing, but I couldn't get other elders to see it like I, like it was at that time. Not, I'm not complaining about them. I'm just saying they, they didn't see it because they weren't doing this full time like I was. And there finally came a point that I was able to get it and I could bring it, the evidence in, and we had the two or three witnesses and we brought it to bear. And everything started to come tumbling out. It was ugly. It was messy. It was dirty and smelly. But he was playing games still. He was still playing games. So what is it? What are we commanded to do? We are to go to the whole church and tell them and rebuke him in front of the whole church. That's really fun for an elder. Why? So that you would fear. Because if an elder is going to get rebuked from the pulpit, then I'd better start fixing things. And he left the church, and you know what his complaint was? Christ. That was not Christ-like. It says, I'm commanded. It's not Christ-like, it's not gracious, and life went on. Let's go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's back a couple pages or forward, however you want to view it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Now, starting in, verse, in the middle of verse 10, it says, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to do what? To lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you. Why? So that you will walk properly before the outsiders, that's an unbeliever, and not be in any need. So is that your goal? Is this the reputation you have online and offline? When a person wants to develop a following on the internet, the first thing they do is make a strong, far-sweeping far statements that are exp- uh, basically designed to get people talking and get them all offended. And everyone starts to retweet and share and post and respond. And all you do is actually help that guy achieve his goal of notoriety. But if you just break down this passage and you let it be a window to your soul, you might find things that need to change. He says that we are to have a quiet life. Make it your ambition. Your whole goal every morning is to wake up and be quiet. Now, is that talking about not talking or something else? Well, it's talking about something else. The term is to be at rest, not restless. It's to be at peace, not agitated. Too many people want to look for an exception to this rather than making this their rule. I said in the first service, there are those people who will say, you know, I just got to say, and then they say something. And almost always what they felt they just got to say shouldn't have been said. In fact, 
a good friend would look at him and say, shut up. Now, I know some of you may not like that word. It's a good word. I'm serious. Some, I get emails. That's, Pastor, you need to work on your language and fine. Shush, be quiet. Stop talking. However, trust me, the point of stumbling is not over the word. It is over the fact that you just got told. It's the sense of restlessness, that, that lack of peace, that agitation. All of you have met them, all of you have been there, and you just it starts to build and build and build, and then your husband comes home. We need to talk. And, like, and he's like, oh, I should have stayed at work. Or the husband comes home, and the whole, wife, the whole family is terrified because he walks in, and he's like, get in here. We're having a family meeting. And they're all like, oh, what happened? And we're all agitated, a quiet life, a life at peace. Minding your own business, he says, is the second thing. Another way of saying this is don't be a busybody, don't meddle. So before you decide you have to fire off that email or you have to go talk to your friend about this situation or that, or you have to post on the social media, think. Think, should I do this? Is this helpful? How is this Adorning the gospel with peace and grace. Is it really my business? And third, he says, work with your hands. In other words, idle hands are at the devil's workshop, the old saying. You should, instead of talking and getting in trouble and giving your opinion where no one asked it, you should be busy building and making things that are good and useful to promote beauty in life. And in your land. Notice again how Paul says that these are things that the apostles commanded them to live and to be. You're commanded to do these things. But then verse 12 gives two reasons. He says, one is so you don't detract from the gospel toward the outsiders. Those who are outside should be looking at you and they should be not seeing you as an obnoxious jerk. In fact, the only thing they should be able to do with you if you live in this way is lie about you. Your reputation at your workplace and at your, in your neighborhood and in your social gatherings should be such that the only thing that a, Christian, a non-Christian can do about you is lie because your life is so above reproach before them that they, you don't give them ammunition because you don't want to mow your lawn, you don't want to pay your taxes, you don't want to this and that, and you're just an obnoxious jerk. But when you behave this way toward the outsiders, consequences come. He says, so that you will also be without need. The implication is that if you act this way, you will have need. There are those who have needs through no fault of their own. There's plenty who have need, though, because of foolishness. They made foolish decisions, they overtly sinned, and now the consequences are there, and some of them go for a long time. Many of you know my testimony that when I was um, around 18 or 19, I stole from my job, and I got myself caught by God's grace, and I got humiliated and fired, and it's a small town, and my father was one of the most prominent people in this town, and so his name got uh, trashed, and 
I couldn't find a job. I had to literally go and dig for aluminum cans and garbage cans for months just to keep my small payment for my car alive. My dad gave me no sympathy, and he shouldn't have given me sympathy. I couldn't find work because I had sinned. And so where am I? I'm in the back of all the businesses digging out aluminum cans. Good or bad, should the church come alongside me and help me fix these things and help me make? No, they shouldn't. If I have to lose my car, I lose my car. I had plenty of needs, but they're all brought on me by me, my choices. Now, you can help ask, ask people to help you un, learn to undo the things. You get yourself into massive debt and you don't know how to get out. Then repent of it and then go seek counsel. And the church will guide you to people who can counsel you on how to get out of debt and how to manage your money the right way. But don't expect that the church is going to cut you a check for that. That's not happening. And that's not, a not, that's not because we're not Christ-like, it's because we're being biblical. One more. Second Thessalonians, so just, what, two pages over. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Just in case you're not clear on this. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, for even when we were with you, so when the apostles were there teaching, we used to what? command. Again, these are not suggestions. We used to command you, command this to you. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. And then he says, for this reason, we hear that among you, some among you are walking in an unruly manner, doing no work at all and acting like busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that working with quietness, meaning shut up, that they eat their own bread. Nothing really hard to figure out here. Again, you don't have to know your Greek to to tear this passage apart. Again, imagine this coming from a pulpit today. I am personally opposed to most food pantries. I mean, I lived in the hood, and, and every church there had a food pantry, and I'm just looking at the people lining up for the food. I'm like, they don't need the food. They're doing quite well right now. In fact, I know that then they're taking their cards, their, whatever their card is, it's the food stamps nowadays, and they're selling them pennies for the dollar for other things, and it all just becomes a way. You don't work, don't eat. It's a pretty simple thing. You say, well, that's out there. That's true. What about in the church? You don't work, you don't eat. You don't work, you don't eat. You can almost hear people saying that this person named Paul cannot be a Christian. What kind of a man would say that? Jesus would never say that. But it's a divine command. If you have the ability to work and you don't, not that you are prevented from working, that's different, but you don't work, He's like, then you don't eat. He say, well, I've got, I've got ADHD. Well, I've got depression. Well, I got, it doesn't matter. Can you work? Well, yeah, but I get, can't find anything in my field. We didn't ask that. Can you work? Well, I had that. I don't care. Can you work? You certainly can get into people's business. Now let's see if we can turn that into a job. 
Does this make sense? There is a suffering that comes because you don't work. And he says, that person, you don't fix that for him. You don't help him. You don't come alongside and say, hey, we'll minister your needs. Then you don't eat. In fact, I would argue this is a great passage for parents to apply in their own home. When Johnny doesn't want to do the chores, well, the chores aren't done. And you go down and you find the chores are not done and you grab them by the ear and you say, get in there and clean your room or fold the clothes or whatever it is. And then call everyone for supper and have an empty plate for him and tell him, sit. Well, where's my food? That's your food. Be quiet, boy, or it'll be worse than this. You sit, we're eating, you watch, and then you learn. And when we're done eating, you can clean up the kitchen. And after you're done with that, then you can go do your chores that you chose not to do. And then maybe we'll try this again tomorrow. And they can go to bed very hungry. They're not going to die, trust me, and or not trust me. Just try it out. You'll find out they wake up and they're quite eager to do their chores. And if they're not, they're stupid, Yes, that's a, actually a biblical word in the Proverbs. It talks about them. They're just stupid. Well, I guess you don't get breakfast either. There will come a point when he's going to say, it's worth making my bed or folding my socks or picking up my floor. And you're training him so he's not like this in the church. In verse 12, he then gives a very positive command. He says, instead of that, be busy working quietly so you can eat your own food. You earn it and enjoy it. Now let me give you a series of verses. I'm just going to quickly read them, and then we'll close all of this up. In Proverbs 18, 6 and 7, a, a, fool's lips comes, a fool's lip come with strife, and his mouth calls for beatings. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Now, every cop in this room knows what I'm talking about here, about the lips of a fool, his mouth calls for beatings, because you've all shown up on a call where some guy or, uh, is sitting there, and he's bleeding from the nose and mouth, and he's, where's that guy? And then you go and you start gathering the evidence, and then the guy's like, yeah, he popped him one. And you're like, oh, okay. And... uh so what's going on? Well, he called my wife this, and they said that, and they like, I'd pop them too. And you, I don't know nowadays, but in my day, you gave the guy no sympathy. You just told him, go away before I hit you. The mouth calls for blows. There's, there's just the consequences. Your, your son comes running home, and he's in trouble because he opened his mouth, and you say, well, I'm going to go talk with their parents. Don't go talk to their parents. Go talk to your son. He's the problem. His mouth started to go. One of the things we, you'll find us to do here at the school is we will fiercely defend our teachers. If a teacher has to rebuke your son or your daughter because they can't quite learn how to obey and you take offense at that, how dare you take him out and, and speak to him in a sharp tone and, and admonish him that way? That's my child. You will face the elders, and they will come back to you and say, well, you can take your son out then. But there are consequences to this. They are called to speak and to function in a proper way. Here's another passage. Proverbs uh, 13.3, the one who guards his mouth 
preserves his life, which implies what? If you don't guard your mouth, you don't. And he says, and the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The big mouth is the one who gets into trouble. The next proverb, chapter 13, verse 4, it says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. You got a lazy child, give them nothing. You have a lazy person at church, they don't get help. You don't come alongside and say, oh, here, let me mow your lawn. Here, let me fix this. If they're, if they're simply the consequences of them being lazy, and it manifests itself today, and they'll claim all kinds of psychological disorders and this and that, and that they just can't. But unless they are literally bound to a bed or incapable of moving, they can do what they need to do, and you need to expect that from them. One last one that's not in my text. In chapter 19... Verse 19, it says, a man of great wrath will bear the penalty. For if you deliver him, you'll only have to do it again. This pretty well sums it all up. For the Christian, you're not helping them when you act like a quote-unquote Christian. And what I mean by that is when you say, well, we're Christians. We, we, they need to see our love for one another. Joey just got himself in the... Oh, sorry, Joey, here. That's just a pretend Joey, not that Joey. Uh, 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 the pretend Joey gets himself into trouble and he, he gets fired from his job because he got drunk and he didn't show up to work and on and on. And now we're like, hey, hey, Fred, can you hire him? Can help him out here? He, he needs some. No, it's not your job to rescue them from the punishment. The man with great anger is going to get into trouble. Why? Because that's what anger always produces. And your job is to let him get in trouble. That's the Christian thing to do. Let him have the consequences. Don't give him pity. Many a parent has prolonged the the agony because they were slow to allow the child to have consequences. One quick story, and then we'll bring it all to a conclusion. I had a couple way many years ago. This is at least 25 years ago, come to my office to talk to me about their rebellious teenage daughter who was, she was like 19 or so. And she was up to all kinds of no good. And they came in to meet with me and, and seek counsel. Now, up to this point, they had ignored every bit of my counsel, but they decided to try it again. So we sit down and I'm like, okay, so what, what, what can I do to help you? And the guy starts out, He's like, well, pastor, before we go any further, I want you to know that sending her out of our house is not on the table. We just don't know what to do with her, but sending her out of our house is not an option. I thanked him for coming and dismissed him. I said, okay, well, it's been good talking to you, and I wish you the best. And now they were upset with me. What? You're not going to help? I said, what do you want me to say to you? I've told you all of the other things. You have a daughter who is in active, open rebellion. I can't fix that. You can't fix that. You can, though, not save her from it, the consequences from it. Let her drink from that cup. It's a bitter cup. And it's painful for a mom and dad to do that. It's very painful. I understand it. Don't misunderstand me. But you have to let them drink it. And then when they finally come to their senses that you'd be ready to receive them, but receive them with the gospel. In our days, exalting victim status is too easy for us to fall into. 
And we need to learn to consider our words or actions and choices and how they might contribute to the situation we're in. And some of those situations can be lifelong. I've, all of us probably have known somebody who rotted their brain with drugs, and now it's all just so, so much of a struggle. And you can ache for them and just say, oh, if only. But you can't fix it, and you can't somehow make those things go away. The church, though, Missio Dei, is to be a present witness to a dying world that's watching. And what they're watching is what it looks like to live in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to walk as people who have been called to a different calling. You and I are to be known as a quiet people. Are you? We are known to be a gentle people. Are you? We're to be known as hard workers. Are you? We are to be generous with our lives and our time to those who have true need. Are you? We are to adorn the gospel with our good works. Do you? And we are not to be named among those who do unrighteousness. Our lives are not to be a contradiction of our statement of faith. You and I will be sinned against, and we are not to react in an evil way. We are instead to pray for those who do evil to us. We are to bless them. We are to do good for them. But we, we are to live in such a way that it forces the unbelieving world to lie about us. Because there's nothing they can say that's true, that's bad about us. We are to be the hardest of workers, the most most faithful citizens, the best neighbors, the most diligent of students, In other words, we're to be a blessing to this world, even if they don't bless us for it. So don't let sin be the cause of your shame. But if it is the cause of shame, then own it, endure it, and do not seek relief from the consequences as if you're a victim. Let's pray. So Father, help us. Help us to that task. It's not easy. Our our flesh yearns to be coddled and pet and strengthened, and we must fight against it. We must crucify it daily. Help us to see these things. Help us to make the discernment that when we see suffering, that not all suffering is simply out of innocence, but some is due to folly. I pray that you will open their eyes, my eyes, that we might all function in a way that's high and holy and proper, that gives you much honor and glory. I thank you for each one of these people. Send them home with much on their mind, though, Father, in your son's name. Amen.